welcome to episode 14 of the Travelling Wellness Show. For today's show, I head to Sydney, Australia to talk with one of the world's most highly respected homeopaths, George Dimitriadis. George has practiced the art of homeopathy for well over 30 years, despite being highly sceptical of the rationale behind his chosen career from the very start. His inquiring mind ultimately pursued the truth and continues to deliver this safe, effective form of medicine to those seeking alternatives to the current allopathic model. But homeopathy certainly isn't for everyone, and this has never been more evident than now, as the world once again calls to question yet another complementary medicine. In an age where everything is apparently about choice and freedom, I for one feel less free than ever, as yet another choice is taken off the consumer table despite its strong run of effective, safe intervention. On this episode, we explore the modality of homeopathy with someone qualified to discuss it. For you see, most discussions, critiques, observations and agendas behind homeopathy are surprise, surprise, made by those with no experience in its use or perhaps just something to gain. I personally am saddened that we continue to move in the very opposite direction of our modern fathers, like Hippocrates, which is ultimately where the key concepts of homeopathy began. It feels very much like diet therapy to me, which also isn't practiced within medical schools, and I can't help but think that we've just ended up with it all back to front. A treat now and ask questions later mindset, if you will. But as the world continues to be inspired by the amazing placebo benefits of Arnica for strains and bruising, I'll just push play on the show. I hope you enjoy. You are listening to Caravan Conversations with Shannon Brenton. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Caravan Conversations is proudly produced by PSE Supplements and explores general health, nutrition and lifestyle with one of Australia's most experienced clinicians. Now, let's get into the show. Right, we're away. So, welcome everyone to another episode of Caravan Conversations. My name is Shannon Brenton, your host and owner of PSE Supplements. And today I'm here with a story that I've been wanting to tell for an awfully long time. And I guess before I introduce our guest today... Um, I'll let you know that when I decided that this podcast series was the next sort of endeavour in my life and I wanted to sort of get out of my career seat a little bit and bring information to people on a larger uh, sort of scale, this man was the very first man I reached out to. Uh, and there's a reason for that, but we'll get to that later. Before we begin, begin today's podcast, I'd like to start with a story, if I may. Um, and the story goes a little bit like this. Uh, on the 24th of August, 1976... I came into this crazy world, and like most people, I was healthy and happy and everything was good. But when I was very, very young, and I'm talking within weeks, my health started to decline quite rapidly, quite quickly. And no one knew why. I was developing um, severe infections. Um, as the time went by, I'm talking a good 18 to sort of 20 months of my life, I had severe febrile convulsions. I spent the bulk of my time being wheeled around in ice baths, so you can imagine my poor old mother and her state. And... Um, by the time I was about two and a half, I went back to my, at the time, general practitioner, obviously under the guidance of my mother, and he took one look at me and one look at mum and read my file and saw the scripting of sort of 20 plus courses of antibiotics and basically told mum that she was killing me and that she needed to find another way. 
And this was obviously um, difficult times. And anyone with children listening to this podcast would be able to um, identify with how that would feel as a parent. And the doctor told mum that she basically needed to find another way. There needed to be something else, another way that they could address, I guess, my array of symptoms, because obviously what we're doing at the time wasn't working. So a really very, very forward-thinking GP in many ways. So this was where, I guess, my exposure to homeopathy came from. And in many ways, it was thrust upon me um, rather than us finding it. And it was basically, uh, along with chiropractic, the prime modality that nursed me back to full health within six months of, um, of age, of time, I should say, since starting it. So throughout my life, it was, it was funny for me because uh, homeopathy was never something I chose. It was something that really chose me in many ways. And I had such um, dramatic experience with it, as did my family, that it just became the modality that we sought and used uh, whenever there was an issue that needed to be rectified and to the point where I only ever saw a doctor a few times in my life. As we fast forward into my teens, I was around 14, 15 and was... Um, I woke up you know, pretty much one day, it was crazy, uh, with over 100 plantar warts on my feet. And the natural reaction, of course, was take me to the local GP, uh, who had a good look and said that, based upon what he saw, that I'd probably require multiple hours of microsurgery to remove these um, you know, nasty little warts on my feet. And my mum being a forward thinker and, and whatnot, basically brought to his attention of course that we were dealing with a viral pathogen here that would more than likely just regrow you know so what was the point in surgery to which he agreed so mum took me off to another homeopath at that time uh, who cured every single one of these things on my feet with, within not long at all and I might as we roll on through this podcast get to how that happened and the way the remedy was selected because I think it's an important aspect of properly understanding homeopathy and one of the reasons why homeopathy is misrepresented a lot of the time and another reason why a lot of the studies around homeopathy fail it and show it in a light or a vein where it's not able to succeed. So there are a couple of my stories and they're very personal and they're by no means a bias for this podcast. My issue around homeopathy right now is its misinterpretation and the reason why I've come to see George today is because he's one of the best homeopaths in the world, certainly one of the best in Australia. He's published five books, he's lectured all around the world, he's you know put articles in journals many, 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 many times and, and certainly... Um, well revered amongst his peers. George is also someone though who's clever enough to realise that homeopathy has its own shortcomings and he's also someone who is just as critical of the, um, I forget exactly how you've termed it George when I read it but you said something uh, in, a, in a magazine that I read that um, it was not just the people who were against homeopathy that were to blame for its current state, but also those for it. So there's a lot of this, um, I guess, uh, misinformation around the science and art that is homeopathy. So I will welcome right now George Dimitriadis. Uh, thanks so much, George, for being with us today. Um, I know it's a, it's a big thing for a practitioner to take time out, but uh, thanks so much for being here. Shannon, uh, thank you for the introduction. It was a great couple of stories that you told us. Yep. And it's not uncommon, you know, to... I mean, why would you otherwise even be thinking of something alternative to the mainstream? Mm. Who would? Well, you wouldn't, exactly. And that's why I say it was thrust upon us. And in many ways, it chose me. And, you know, and, and I'm happy that it did because I've had such good um, effects from it. But um, if you don't mind, George, um, I know you've had a career now um, as a homeopath for over 30 years. 
tell us a little bit about what brought you into it because I would imagine it, you know, it's, it's not every day, you know, that a guy becomes a homeopath. So no, where'd your intrigue come from? Fascinating question. I was, well, I guess um, I, I was doing martial arts and one of my friends who um, was training with me, we went back to his place one Saturday afternoon and uh, we were talking and he'd begun a course uh, doing herbal medicine, homeopathy. I'd never heard of homeopathy. And, uh, in fact, I thought it was something that happened at home. <laughs> so, you know, homeopathy is oh, a strange geez. word, and that was probably the first aversion I had to it. Yep. But, uh, anyway, he started talking about um, how they manufacture the medications and how strange it is and that the fact that, you know, the more dilute it becomes, the more powerful it becomes. Yeah. Um, actually, no, he didn't say that at first. He, he showed me his cupboard. And I opened up and he had all these bottles marked 6X, 12X, and he explained what that meant. And he said, basically, uh, the 12X is uh, uh, diluted 12 times, each time uh, by a factor of 10. And I said, OK, so the 12X is more is weaker than the 6X. He said, no, the opposite. <laughs> now, ordinarily, I'm fairly critical. Anyone that knows me would know that I'm very particular with words and, and uh, I don't believe anything I don't see. Yep. And half probably what I see. And, uh, but for some reason, I mean, this guy was a good friend. He was, you know, no reason to doubt him. And I thought, I was intrigued by it. Strange thing. So I asked more about it. And uh, disbelieving, I started reading about it. And then I decided to um, enrol in the program he was in. If we could just stop there, George, that's the point most people stop, right? It is. And I, I can't, you, if you ask me why did I pursue something that I would have ordinarily dismissed. Yeah. And, I don't know the answer to that. And, and the, the greatest criticism of homeopathy, of course, is, in fact, its potentization yes. of, of a remedy, right? Where, yes. in fact, that the, the less of a crude substance is in it, the more powerful, I guess, the, the memory of that product becomes Yes, in its own sense. And I think uh, we'll get to that, I think. But, but actually, that is not a central issue with homeopathy. Mm-hmm. Potentization, this idea of diluting something and making it more powerful, uh, only when you dilute and shake, that yes. is the case, yep. uh, was nothing to do with homeopathy at its origins. It, hap- it happened later. Okay. So if you, dis- if, you dis- if you discuss what is homeopathy, then homeopathy is very simple. Uh, the definition, which does not include potency or dilution, says that something which produces a series of effects mm-hmm. in health will actually remove similar effects when given to people suffering those effects who have not taken that substance. Which is similar for the, the listener to make it really easy and able to link it to something similar in its own right to vaccination or, or anti-venoms, I should say. Very similar. Yep. In fact... So uh, a snake bites you or, or something, you just give a little bit... Antivenine. ...more of the same venom that you know, well, the yes. snake bit them with yes. and the body produces antibodies or a response to it. Correct, and if uh, you know, everyone knows the effect that onion has on you when you're cutting it. Yeah, uh, it causes symptoms of runny eyes, lacrimation, runny nose, you know, irritation, mm. and you go outside and you feel better. Well, these are symptoms of some types of hay fever for which we give allium sepa, allium sepa, which yep. is a preparation of onion. Yep. Now, why? The question is, why would something that produces a set of symptoms in health remove them in disease? And the answer to that question is so simple. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and yet, if you ask me why two bodies 
each with a mass, produce a force of attraction called gravity. And we can measure it. We can use it to determine ballistic projections. And, uh, I don't know that either. Nobody knows. Mm. It's just a fact. So the law of similars then, which homeopathy is coined on, which I think similar similibus, is that how it goes? Similia similibus curanta. Yeah, that's the Latin part form yeah, of it. Which is essentially that, that, that aspect isn't really a law at all then, other than the fact, I guess, that it's been um, observed over time. It's an observational yeah. law. I mean, basically, uh, it's interesting. Uh, it wasn't observed a couple of hundred years ago. It was first observed by Hippocrates, or first reported by Hippocrates 2,000 years ago. And Hippocrates is the uh, uh, acclaimed father of modern medicine. And the mm. reason he's so uh, acclaimed is because he was one of the few who observed uh, diseases and described them so well and gave very few medicines. He actually gave more diet. Uh, and so, for example, there was a disease called um, the... Um, what was it called? It was a disease that everyone thought at that time was a affliction of the gods, yeah, by right? the gods. Yep. And he described it saying, how could it be an affliction? It's no more strange than any other disease. And today we call this disease epilepsy. Okay. Can you imagine... 2,000 years ago, um, or 400 BC, uh, someone with epilepsy, severe epilepsy, they would have thought they were possessed. Yes, exactly. But he argued it was just a disease. Yep. And uh, so Hippocrates said in certain conditions, don't give the medicine that produces opposite symptoms. In other words, don't give something that cools the body, that cools the blood for fever. Give something that produces fever. He said this. And through the centuries, many other people have said, in isolated examples, um, similar things. A, a physician called Benjamin Bell. There were other physicians like uh, Georg Stahl who said that uh, it's an absurdity to give uh, something that produces opposite symptoms yep. to stop disease. He said, in fact, for gastric ulcers, for where there's too much acid, I give a little bit of sulfuric acid, and that cures them. Mm. So he... So Hahnemann knew all this. So Hahnemann, of course, was the, you know, the founding father, for want of a bit of a term, Correct. of what we know as modern-day homeopathy. Correct. Yeah. So explain for a little bit for our listeners about Hahnemann, because um, I'm talking in reference to provings and how we actually okay. came up with the concept. Let people understand, I guess, where homeopathy came from. Good, good idea. So Samuel Hahnemann was a very noted, uh, very well-respected physician in his own right. He was uh, fluent. So, so they say, but he was very conversant with nine languages. Uh, and he was not happy with the practice of medicine. Remember at that time... He, very he, crude back then, wasn't very it? Very crude. There was no uh, physical training. There was no um, you know, tutorials in actual hospitals at that time. He had to move. In fact, Vienna was one of the only schools in Europe that had practical training for physicians. So it was all theory. Hmm. And... Um, he was so disgusted with the practice of medicine having so many theories. I mean, theories like, because this plant grows amongst rocks, it must be good for dissolving stones. <laughs> because this plant, say sarsaparilla, has a blood-red colour when you make its uh, uh, solution, it was good for purifying blood. Yeah. These theories abounded. Um, and Hahnemann, this is called the Doctrine of Signatures, Hahnemann was very unhappy with the practice of medicine and, and often stopped practising. And for periods in his life, started only translating. Yep. So he would often translate a book from, say, the English to the German. Yep. 
And his book was usually value-adding because in those days, pharmacy was very secretive. So they weren't allowed to publish the pharmacy of one country to another. So, you know, so basically Hahnemann would give specific references where the original author didn't, would criticise or clarify. So his books were bigger and actually very, very well, uh, well accepted. In one time, he was translating a book uh, from the, uh, an English physician in Edinburgh, um, William Cullen. William Cullen was writing about medicine. One of the topics Hahnemann was translating in this particular place was about a drug called China. China being... Um, the bark of a tree. The bark of a tree. Yep. Better called kina, kina yep. meaning bark. And today we know that's where we get quinine from. Yes. So the Peruvian bark. Now, Cullen was making a statement that the reason um, China bark was good against malaria was because it had two principles within it. It contained both a bitter principle and a tonic principle, an astringent to the stomach. And he said each of these principles, that is the bitterness and the astringency, a tonic in themselves. Together they make such a tonic to the stomach and that's the mechanism. Was this before they knew it contained quinine? Oh, well, they hadn't isolated quinine. Okay, so it was before. This, is, this was uh, 1790. So he was basing its symptoms upon its principles, not necessarily its isolated extract of quinine. Absolutely. Mm. No idea of quinine. So he was assuming that it was the bitterness and the stringency which caused the effect against malaria. Now, Hahnemann was a He'd married, his first wife was a daughter of a pharmacist. So he was very trained in pharmacy. And um, he thought to himself, hold on a moment, I can mix compounds which are more bitter and more astringent to the stomach than quinine and they have no effect on malaria. It can't possibly be these things that are the reason that it's good for malaria. What's the reason? So now Hahnemann was already aware of the previous observers having like Hippocrates saying isolated examples of similars. That is, what will produce a set of symptoms will remove similar symptoms. So guess what he did? He started experimenting. He took a bit of quinine or china bark china himself. Bark. Yep. So he took half the therapeutic dose, which was uh, seven drams, which is quite a lot. And he took it every few hours and he writes in a footnote to his translation. Remember I said he value adds? Yeah, yeah. In his translation he says, I don't believe Cullen is right. Now Cullen was only reproducing the thoughts of the whole profession. Hahnemann said, I took my experiment such and such and I noticed all the creeping chills, the aches, the weakness, same as the symptoms that I've experienced uh, with malaria. Yep because he was treating malaria and lower hungry for a few months. He knew the symptoms. And he said, maybe, maybe there's a similar principle at play here. So the hypothesis was applied? He just had the idea. Remember, it wasn't his idea. Yeah, he just Someone else, it. he just thought, well, maybe that's what exactly what Hippocrates had said about certain fevers. Maybe also in this fever, for this reason, same. And then Hahnemann did what someone, what nobody else had done in all those centuries. He decided to trial. The dilution? No, 
No? No, no, no. We're not there yet. I'm getting excited here. You're getting excited. <laughs> what he did was he now had in his mind the idea that in this case, in this one example of this one drug, it supports the hypothesis put forward by Hippocrates, 400 BC. Let's test other drugs. What would you do? You'd test other drugs too. Yeah. Yep. Right. But the first thing you would do if you had this idea is you'd do a literature search. That's what you would do, right? You would go and say, well, what's everyone else found? Yep. Now, in medicine, there were other drugs that were very, very useful for certain diseases, all discovered by accident. There was no methodical discovery of drugs at that time. Mm. It was all accidental. I can't imagine that a, uh, a, a checking of drug class back in the early 1800s None. would have been an easy, an <laughs> easy process for him. Correct. So he's basically just spoken to peers, yeah? Is that what he's done? No, what he's done is he, he was a good researcher. He was very widely read in many languages, Latin, French, uh, Portuguese, Italian, English, yep. German, uh, all of those languages. So there were books citing there were books. these aspects. There yep. were books. So he went through and he, uh, what he did was he tested, he collected the information on about 60 drugs that were already useful in medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, things like uh, opium and things like uh, St. Ignatius has been, uh, Nux Vomic, uh, those sorts of things. And he did tests on himself with a bit of these drugs and on his lucky family. (laughs) And he found, and he wrote a book, he found that in every one of these substances that he tested, that these substances had already been found and used very well in those diseases he found that they produce similar symptoms in every case when given in small dose, not minute, minute dose, yeah. but in safe dose to healthy people. So he wrote a paper in 1796. So he did this for six years. Remember, 1790 was William Cullen. 1796 mm. was this paper. And this paper was entitled In Search of a New Principle for Ascertaining the Curative Powers of Drugs with a few examples of some drugs already known. And he publishes his paper in 1796 in a journal by a fellow called Hufeland, who was a very prestigious journal in Germany, a big, you know, big uh, physician. And he publishes his paper and he announces to his, to his um, profession for the first time that uh, there is, he said, whereas before in 1790 I said perhaps there is a similar principle in play for China, he said, now it's for certain there is a general principle of similars. Not perhaps, and not only in one or two or three cases. It was in, replicatable. In every drug I tested, it had similar symptoms. So Nux vomica, which was given for gastric problems, it would produce gastric problems. Uh, China, uh, sorry, Ignatia, which produced uh, spasms and cramps, would produce spasms and cramps. Yeah. Very interesting. And he publishes this. Now, Hahnemann went from being the talk of the town, the best translator, the, uh, the expert physician on, on venereal uh, disease. Uh, disease to being ostracised. Yeah, of course. Same, same criteria. He had the same academic background. He had the same... And he was simply giving his findings to his brethren to do something with it. Of course, they didn't want to listen. Why is that, do you think? speak openly. I think Hahnemann was critical of medical practice because he was already critical of it, saying, look, we go from hypothesis to hypothesis. And it wasn't only him that criticised it. I mean, the people like, you know, Richard Mead and and, uh, Charles Alston, all these great physicians of the past, John Hunter, 
have all criticised saying things like, you know, a lot of the ideas that have come up as diagnostic in medicine are actually in the brains of the physician. Mm. They don't exist. So he was well acutely aware of the problems with diagnostics at that time. All theories, as I gave you some inkling to. So I think it was a challenge. You know, Hahnemann was really, he's German, right? Very dogmatic. Yeah, you know, this is what I've found. And people, I think, took offence. And they, how do you change? It's very difficult well, change. Change is difficult to accept, right, for most people, let, let alone industries, Yeah. you know, and professions. So talk to us now about uh, moving right along from there. And for the people that are listening that are like, you know, tell me more about this, you know, what actually is homeopathy. Essentially, we're taking, you know, a drop of a crude substance and dropping that into 99 drops of water or an ethanol water blend or just ethanol, whatever it may be. That's then being succussed at that, is that right at that well, point? So succussion is basically a vibrationary shaking of the well, model? Well, I think before we get there, if we could just spend a couple of minutes because this is the confusion. If we can now accept that homeopathy as a system came up in 1796, yep. no mention of dilution, no mention of succussion. Okay. But he would give half the therapeutic dose, which ah, is very large at that it. time. Very but, large. But at that point, still enough to actually, you know, if a biochemist was to pull that apart, they'd see and crude would, evidence of substance. And it would poison you. Okay. It, depending on your susceptibility, it would yep. poison you. Okay. Now, as he became more accurate in prescribing, that is, when he started realising that uh, instead of just saying it's cramps and headaches, when he started taking information like, oh, the cramps start on the left side of the abdomen and move to the right, the headaches were actually above the, uh, the orbit, just above, and they penetrated through to the back. Different headaches are different, right? So when he started taking more accurate information and he gave the same drug in the same dose, he found that he got severe aggravations. Okay. It's a bit like, okay, a snake bites you. Letting the snake bite you again doesn't help. <laughs> you, you need to give a very small dose. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. And uh, so... He started experimenting, and as I said, he was married to the daughter of a pharmacist. He was very... Um, Lavoisier said of Hahnemann, who was a famous chemist uh, before he was beheaded, I think, in the French Revolution. He said of Hahnemann, or certainly not after, he, he said of <laughs> Hahnemann uh, he would have made a good pharmacist had he not been such a good physician. Yep. And uh, so he started diluting things. He had to. And I don't know why he started succussing. He doesn't explain it, but I think it was because he wanted to mix the molecules or the particles intricately yes and of course if we just dilute something it gets to a point that it doesn't do anything we know that but if i dilute and succuss at each stage you get to a point in sensitive patients that they will still react and now i want to answer the idea oh, it's like a drop in the ocean it's not like a drop in the ocean it's like a drop in a in a tumbler full shaked and then another drop from that in another tumbleful, shaked. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a serial stepwise progression. Eventually you get to the same dilution, but you don't just do one drop in the ocean. That won't do anything. Yes. So. I get it. And is this where the principle, I know this is only just your personal um, thought around it, but is this where the principle of any vaccines came from, do you think? You know, going back to the same methodologies of Hippocrates 400 well, that's, BC? That's an interesting question. I don't think so. I think um, Jenner was in 1799, I believe. So he was a contemporary of Hahnemann, but um, the first publication of on homeopathy announced to the public, as I said, was 1796, but as a system it was 1810. So I don't think Jenner was influenced by homeopathy. However, 
the observations with Jenna that small doses of the same thing can immunise yes. uh, is homeopathic. In origin. So where's, where does the problem, where does the disconnect with homeopathy begin? Is it an, uh, an us-versus-them thing, you believe, with the powers that be that obviously don't want competition? Or is it more than that? What's your thoughts? That's a good question. I, I think the biggest the stumbling block to homeopathy is that people uh, pass judgment on it uh, because it seems absurd. Yeah. But then I guess if I said to them, look, it seems absurd that you'd find uh, creatures in the bottom of the ocean where there's no light with, with enormous colours when you shine a light on them, mm. that's absurd too. Tell me the point, George, where it began not being absurd for you anymore. So you got your mate back in karate telling you about these 12X things, how they're removed 12 times, and you're like, yeah, what's that doing? You are generally someone that's got a fairly you know, sceptical nature so you've got and done more research. You started this course, as you said. When did you become a believer? That's a good question. I don't think... I've got I, lots of good questions, don't I? I don't, you do. I don't, <laughs> someone asked me once, I, I met them somewhere, and they said, oh, you believe in homeopathy? And I looked at them, I said, that's like asking if I believe in a chair. Mm. It you know it to a, be it, true. It serves a function. Yep. As soon as it stops serving a function, I'm out. Yep. So it's not a belief. It's a, it's a validation due to evidence. Now, it's interesting that if you look at the scientific model, and this is very interesting. The reason, and I've been to university, I've done science, and I know that people copy and cheat. And I don't trust the next person, neither would they trust me. Um, so the reason why we need more than one observer to validate something is because we don't trust them. Yep. That's reasonable. Yes. However, if your dog died yesterday and nobody saw it, does that invalidate the fact that the dog's dead? That the dog's dead? Mm, of course. Must you have other people... Must you replicate that death? <laughs> you can't do it, right. So there are some... So fact, actual fact, and, and scientificity as, as, a, as a model yep. aren't the same thing. It's all about probability and belief. So the reason why people don't look at homeopathy, I think, is because, ah, that's the thing that is implausible. It's implausible to have something such a small dose do anything. Yeah. But my, my answer to that is forget about the dose. If we really want to do experiments to validate homeopathy, that is that similars works, mm -hmm. let's have a situation where we give a drug that produces similar effects, not opposite effects. See if that works. And in fact, we have evidence for that. There are many examples in, in medicine which are homeopathic that I don't even know about. Uh, for example, they give they give uppers, they give they give um, stimulants to people who have ADHD. That's right, exactly. They give uh, and it calms them down. And it calms them down. Everyone knows if you if you're a smoker, and nicotine is a stimulant. If you don't have your cigarette, you start to shake and you start to get agitated. And you have a cigarette, what happens? It goes away. It calms you down. Mm. So it basically, it depends on what state you're in whether the stimulants calms you down or stimulates you. Let's talk now about the, the uh, lack of perceivable evidence around homeopathy. Um, there's a lot of things happening in the world around homeopathy right now, hence why this podcast is so timely. We understand the, the pressure it's under as far as the modality goes. Um, there's been you know, um, Australian government um, research, apparent research done on the topic, and they've come to the conclusion that homeopathy is no more useful than placebo. We know, of course, placebo itself is a, is a good thing, but they're basing 
everything on some sort of evidence-based system, okay? And obviously the systems they have in place for these things are the systems that in their own right tend to fail homeopathy before they begin. So all your double-blind placebo studies and, and the like that basically set homeopathy up to a point where it where, where it it just fails. And so getting to what you said beforehand, where um, I forget exactly what medication it was, but you said that the pain begins on the left and you know it moves to the right or the headache begins above the orbit and then runs through to the back of the head. These aspects um, around the way a disease presents or a dysfunction presents, where a homeopath's looking at the obscurities around a condition, what it is that makes it different than everything else is actually where the prescription comes from, correct? Yes. So if I come to you for a headache, and you know there might be 60 remedies for headache, there's probably more, right? But you as a physician are going to want to work out what's different about my headache, correct? Yeah, first of all, I have to identify what headache you have yes. to try to classify, and then what are the unique characteristics that differentiate and make it your headache. Yeah. Yes. And the treatment's based around the whole person. Basically, yes. Mm. It has to be, because there's only one physiology, right? Yep. How can a headache be separate? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Person? Well, it's true. Hey, um... It's funny, I was reading a, uh, a review online on homeopathy by a man called Ian Dunk. I don't know if you know Ian Dunk, but uh, he's basically a, a British politician who believes that homeopathy is not only a, a, a test of idiotcy, um, but also morality, where he suggests that a belief in homeopathy shows that people are failing to, quote-unquote, understand the world. And I can't tell you how many of these, George, I found just in reference to doing some research around talking with you today, where... Um, a lot of people out there who are anti-homeopathy aren't just anti-homeopathy; they they're outraged by it. It's it's like it um, it's like it um, goes against basic judgment and morality and what is normal. What do you say to these people? I mean, it's very hard to talk. I mean, look, I, I'm very hot-headed when I was young. Mm. I did martial arts, as you know. Um, I'm very happy to have discussions with people, but yep. I, you know what I've learned as I got older is. I don't know everything. Yep. And it fascinates me when I find the, the, the amazing discoveries we make, even in, in physiology, but also outside us. So how can I begin to think that I should know how the world should act? Yeah. So what I do is I, I temper my disbelief, like I used to have, as I said to you, I disbelieve everything. I temper it with the fact that, you know what? Who am I to know? Let me see the evidence. Rather than prejudging something, let me see the evidence. Yep. So I would say to people that have a judgment on homeopathy, where have you read? What have you read? What actually have you looked at? Do the experiment. If the experiment fails, that's a different story. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the people like the NHMRC, um, a few years ago they released, supposedly a leaked paper, which was a position paper on homeopathy, which in that position was against homeopathy. They said, oh, homeopathy is rubbish, basically. Now, I wrote the NHMRC, and I said, well, how can you release this? And they said, oh, we didn't release it, it was leaked. I said, well, how can this paper starts off with a view, the first paragraph, that it's rubbish, and ends up with the same paragraph after you said you've contacted 400 experts. Now, I know a lot of experts in this field. None of them were named by the NHMRC. They yeah. don't exist. So what they did, they had an opinion. And then they set up to reproduce this in a, in a supposedly controlled review. The review itself, the criterion they used, would exclude most of modern medicine. They'd fail. 
So they made it absolutely critical. Moreover, they omitted findings which were contrary to what they wanted to find. The NHMRC, to me, is, a, is an embarrassment yep. for a prestigious body. So, and, and, you know, what's really strange about it is they don't... You, you can't have a body examining a subject when they themselves don't know anything about the subject. Yep. It's like asking a, a bootmaker to examine your Maserati hmm. and saying, pass a judgment on how good the quality of the Maserati engine is. Yeah. Ask him about boots. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and I respect a lot a good bootmaker. Yeah. No doubt about it. But let's not ask different people to pass opinion or judgment simply they've got because they've got this authority given to them, but they've got no knowledge. Is there a testing method you believe which would be able to identify homeopathy as being the capable modality? It well, is? very simple. Um, Other than empirical Very simple. Knowledge. First of all, if it was simply uh, placebo, yep. then how do you explain that there are uh, whole groups of people called veterinarians yep. in Europe, in America, in Canada, that, that actually practice nothing but homeopathic medicine on animals? And yep. there's no placebo on the animal. The animal doesn't care what it gets. Yeah. So no one explains that. The animal doesn't feel independent. That would be similar for children, I would imagine. Similar for children, but more so with animals, isn't it? Yep. Because children can be placeded by their patients, yep. by their parents. Yep. Please, by their parents, you'll be good now. Yep. Animals, you can't do that to. I'll give you an example, though, from my perspective. You know, I, I use homeopathy extremely successfully with fever with my children. And um, it amazes me how many people still hit their kids with ibuprofens and paracetamols and things because we know that the suppression pretty much just leads to the same fever the next afternoon or evening anyway, right? So I guess that, uh, and this is a, a non-biased process of me just saying this is my findings. Using an example of a remedy like belladonna, for instance, I have had children like with 40 degree fevers or 39 degree fevers in bed asleep, you know, delirious like they tend to be with fevers like that. I give them a dose of belladonna, give another dose of belladonna, maybe 15 minutes and the fever's gone and the kid's asleep. So I wasn't in a situation where I was able to say, oh, it's okay, honey, here's your special drops that he's giving you to fix your fever. <laughs> it's a simple case of they're delirious in the bed and I stick you know, right. a, a dropper under their tongue and give it to them and the fever's gone, you know? Yep. And this is why, for me, homeopathy is you know, not just an efficient medicine, but it's a safe and effective medicine. So, and cost-effective, let's face it. Talk to me, though, George, about the safety, because when we're looking at, when we're looking at medicine, we know, we know modern medicine kills lots of people, right? We know, we know the statistics around that um, in its crude form. So talk about homeopathy as far as its safety goes. Well, the, the safety of a medicine in homeopathy is very good because you're using something that's ultra-dilute, what we call ultra-dilute. Yeah, and doesn't exist really in the eyes of a biochemist, right? Well, there's a lot of research now on what they call nanotechnology, and they've found that, in fact, you can find these molecules. Yep. But regardless of the explanation, the fact is yep. we can determine an effect and we can measure this effect if you care to look. Yes. And, and there's, no, there's no sense of lack of safety that way. The sense of lack of safety comes, and this is a concern and should be a concern, when people who are inadequately trained to identify disease and the severity of it and maybe misdiagnose. Mm -hmm. But that happens anyway if you look at the statistics on safety in you know, treatments in hospitals, for example. Yep. But as far as the drug itself causing concerns, it doesn't. Yep. I read a retort of yours, George, um, to that letter you were talking about. What was the guy, um, the death of homeopathy? Someone wrote a... Yes, Ian Freckleton QC wrote a, a letter in a legal journal in Australia, the Australian J 
Journal of Law, I think it was called, yep. um, three or four years ago, and he said death by homeopathy. Why has the Australian Journal of Law got interest in homeopathy? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Mm, okay, so you don't know. Well, I, I believe it's because uh, that would increase the number of convictions and that would increase the, the trade, I guess. Okay. And, and I, do, uh, I do accept, and I'll just throw out there for our listeners who are you know, pro-allopathic treatment, that at the end of the day, um, seeking the work of a homeopath is up to the person seeking the help, right? And sometimes people need to go to hospital, right? Absolutely. There, there has, I, I know, been um, noted deaths of people who have been seeing homeopaths rather than doctors for things that they probably should have seen doctors for first Absolutely. and foremost. Yep. But you made a, a really interesting point uh, in your retort to this guy, and I've got it here, so I'll just read it sort of quote-unquote. And you say, the fact is that modern pathology has for many years taught that it is not the infecting organism alone which determines its virulence, but largely the specific susceptibility of the host, i.e. that it is the host's response, so I'm reading from my phone here, that it's the host's response which determines the ultimate development of pathology, hence the elimination of the microorganism associated, triggering the disease, so killing the bacteria or virus, um, um, can never remove the unhealthy disposition which is very, very interesting. So basically in the, in the process of homeopathy, you're seeking to treat the, the, the sum, the whole of the organism and strengthen it rather than just kill the infective pathoorganism that Correct. may be yeah. there at the time. Well, it's not an antibiotic we give, so we can't kill directly the, yep. the biotic. Yep. Uh, it's interesting. Why do you think it is that, let's just say in a, in a hospital, large hospital with 20,000 people visiting and staff and all that sort of stuff, maybe two or 300 will get uh, Legionnaire's disease. Yep. And out of those two and three hundred, maybe ten or fifteen or twenty at worst will die. Yep. What determines whether the same bug has a you know a virulence, uh, you know, kills or doesn't kill a particular host organism, and it comes down to their susceptibility. Yep. We know also... Which is know, essentially the separation though, right, between you know um, complementary medicines and uh, allopathic treatment. They look mainstream medicine knows this. Uh, we know that in certain diseases, for example, let's just say a person has um, kidney disease. Um, you know, if a person has kidney disease, then giving them uh, in mainstream medicine digoxin, which is an extract of a, of a plant called digitalis, giving them digoxin can be toxic yep. because digoxin, uh, if you like, its effects are amplified with renal failure. So, you know, you've got to be very careful. And so we, we know that in certain diseases, certain races, certain people, uh, females as opposed to male, age groups, have dispositions to various diseases more than other people, right? That's no problem. But in homeopathy, we know even within the normal population, uh, one person in their family, even if it's not genetically linked, we can see that they've got an increased tendency to get this rather than that. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. we can use that information. Yes. And we can actually fortify that. It's interesting that when you give them a homeopathic medicine on the little things that are left, not when they get their colds. You give them something for the cold, but they're getting 20 colds a year. When you give them something in between their colds, that is their acute is over, and you find all these little symptoms, that they feel pretty good, but there's little signs that they're not perfect. And when you consider those together and give them medicine, it actually can... Uh, modify and improve their disposition to getting sick. Yes. And that's something which uh, mainstream medicine can't do. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Getting back to a point you made um, beforehand, looking at the proving of homeopathy as far as um, you know, a medicine unto its own right goes, you brought up the sort of the postulation of the nano um, particulate perspective, right? Which is looking at the fact that on a nano level, you know, that we're having an imprint or, or some level of actual substance yes. which is sustained after using a remedy. Yes. Can you explain that for us? Well, uh, there's some research being done probably for the last oh, maybe five to ten years. Uh, one lady, uh, Iris Bell, in the, in the United States, they've published some papers on their findings in the solutes, in the uh, medicine, in the substances, they're actually finding molecules of the original substance. Yep. So even when you've got these ultra, ultra, ultra dilutions saying, well, there can't be anything more there because it's more dilute than the hypothetical Avogadro's number, Yes. Um, they've found that they can actually measure and detect that there is some substance in nanoparticles left. Mm-hmm. So that's really good. But to me, the most important thing, regardless of whether we understand the mechanism, is can we apply the reproducible, observable effects? Must I understand why gravity exists for me to use it? Mm-hmm. Must I? Well, many many need to, by the look of things, right? You know, well, many they don't, need to. They, don't, they, they use gravity all every day and exactly. no one knows why it exists. You know, what's funny, though, you bring that point up, because even when I was looking at some research around the, uh, the nanoparticles, and I saw exactly what you said, where they're using mostly like, like silver and gold and some of these sort of metal um, substances. And there was most definitely some sign of these substances at the nano level that were still around. The, the, the haters of it basically said, well, you haven't ruled out contamination. You know, so you know, bringing, I guess, to the field that each of those remedies individually could have been contaminated with gold <laughs> and contaminated with silver and the like, you know. So I don't know. Can we ever get to a point, I guess, where it is either, you know, approved or disapproved in the world of science? I think it'll only get to that point when it's accepted as being plausible. And this yep. is the problem with science. Modern science thinks if it's not plausible, I'm not going to pursue it. Yep. Now, you have to have some sort of plausibility. Otherwise, why would you spend the money? Yeah. However, how implausible have discoveries been in the past? Yep. How implausible was it? Did you know, for example, I'll give you a really nice example. There's a substance I've mentioned before called digitalis. Now, digitalis is a very commonly prescribed medicine for heart failure. Uh, well, they don't give digitalis. They give uh, an extract of it called digoxin or digitoxin, but it's, a, it's a, what we call a cardiac glycoside. Now, the original, the original person that spoke about this with respect to these sorts of symptoms that it could be useful for was a fellow called um, William Withering. And he published a paper, a booklet in 1785. After 10 years of research, he looked at close to 160, 170 cases, which he documents in his book. We found digitalis was fantastic in removing fluid buildup, whether it was fluid on the brain, uh, basically the whole body being too much fluid, and from that fluid buildup, problems with the liver, problems with the heart. And these people would urinate and lose pounds in a day from the digitalis. Fantastic. Now, the reason he gave digitalis is because an old woman told him who'd been using it as a folk folk medicine. He was a doctor, very well trained. How did he discover digitalis? 
from hearsay. Yeah. But he didn't he, dismiss it. Yeah. The problem with modern medicine is we readily dismiss something which doesn't sound reasonable. And you know, I can tell you, it's not logical. Physiology is not logical. It's, it's not logical to understand. It's really not logical to find that there are substances in our body which have the same effect which the body produces and they mimic things like opium. We have endogenous opiates yep. and kephalins and endorphins. We have what we call digitalis-like or digoxin-like immunoreactive substances produced by the body in various sites and they have the effect like digitalis. Why would the body do this? We can, we can eventually go deeper and deeper and deeper and it won't actually help us clarify anything unless we have an openness. Yeah. We first of all have to say, listen, I don't understand why this is. Let's just accept it is. Let's test it, yep. not dismiss it. Yep. And that's the biggest problem with science because I think it's driven by outcomes. It's driven, we need to have a scientific, um, a, a, we need to pay for this experiment only if it's going to mean we can make a product from it. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, pure science experiment doesn't happen very often. Yep. And of course, you know, I read a statistic um, from Europe, of course, when they were talking about the fact that of the $11 billion spent in drug research, 0.0001% of it was spent on homeopathy. So, you know, I guess that um, if there's not a lot of effort put there and not a lot of critical analysis and critical thinking around it and doors are closed, well, people already will prove that they've already made their mind up about It's true. Yep. And, and it's unfortunate, too, I have to say, that um, a lot of homeopathy that's been taught isn't good homeopathy. Yep. I distinguish uh, homeopathy as the sort of overview label from homeopathy proper. Mm-hmm. And homeopathy proper, you know, to be a good homeopathy, you really need to understand physiology, anatomy, you know, biochemistry, all these medical sciences. You need to understand disease and health. Hmm. How can you otherwise treat? How do you know Absolutely. what's happening? And anyone that ever p- picks up one of Hanum's books will realise he was no idiot, right? No, he was. Quite he knew clever. the body inside out, back to front. He was guy. quite clever. Very, very smart man. Hey, um, it's been awesome talking with you, George. Um, you've really helped to give us some insight around homeopathy, what it is, how it works, and some of its history. Um, you got any final words for us? Uh, final words. Well, thank you for the invitation. It was really good. Uh, you know, it, it's really good to be able to get something out openly. I, I hope people think, uh, maybe after this, that they think, well, you know, there is evidence when you look for it. Uh, just because someone says there isn't evidence, maybe let me look a bit deeper. Yeah. But the only reason you would go to a homeopath or you'd go to look at homeopathy or any alternative is because you're not happy where you are. If you, need, if you know you've got migraines every day and you're taking immigrant or you're taking something yeah. and you've still got symptoms yeah. and your doctor says to you, look, that's all we can do, forget about all the others, they're rubbish. Mm-hmm. If you're happy with that, well, maybe it's your lot to be happy yeah, with Yeah, it's it. enough, exactly right. So I yep. would say to you, if you're not exactly happy, look for alternatives, study carefully, go to people that, you know, ring them, ask them, you know, write to them. People are happy to respond to you and, ask, and actually clarify things for you and make your own decisions about where you want to do. And you're right in the fact go. that choosing the right practitioner is right, correct? You know? And I know that some of your um, kickback to some of the criticism of homeopathy has basically said that you know, it's, you're not necessarily assessing here the practice, you're assessing the practitioner. Very good. 
you Perfect. know, which, which, which is exactly right. It's like anything, though, right? Good plumbers, bad plumbers. Good mechanics, bad mechanics. You don't Good them. politicians. You don't say mechanics are all shit because mm. you have one bad experience. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Good politicians. I'm, I'm sure sh- there are some good ones or intended I'm to sure be they're good. out there. But, yeah, you know, I think that um, that's a really important part. And I think it's uh, discouraging when you say that there's been reports and positions written on homeopathy. When you're one of the, you know, the main leaders in the world, and, and certainly not just you, but your peers, and they're not being asked their position. No, no, nothing at all. I find that very problematic, but I think that answers a lot of you know what we're dealing with here. But uh, it's been awesome, George. Thanks so much for your time. Anyone that's got any um, queries around homeopathy, um, you can certainly send them straight through to me. Um, hey, but you give yourself a plug, George. Tell people where you are. You're down here in Parramatta in New South Wales, Australia. Well, look, you know, if you want to find me, you'll find me. But I'm in, I'm in Sydney, and I've been in Sydney for a long time. Yeah. Presently in Parramatta, but uh, look, there are other good homeopaths around. There are a few of them, but I know them. Yes. So if you if you want someone close to the area, you're always welcome. We've got a website. Yep. Uh, What's your website? It's um, www.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstitute.com.au.hanamaninstit